Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You probably know if you've been paying any attention to the news whatsoever for the last number of days and hours and even weeks, you're probably aware that by tomorrow morning when you wake up, 155,000 federal workers may be on strike. How that will affect you? Well, that depends what you do. If you need a passport, probably affect you. If you're using an airport or a train station, probably affect you. Uh, if your taxes, 35,000 people who work for the tax department, possibly on strike, that'll screw things up. But there's other parts of this that deal with the negotiations and how much money would be involved in this. I want to bring in Eric Cam. He is an economics professor from Toronto Metropolitan University, a great friend of the show. We appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. So let's skip the, what happens to my passport application for now and talk about the money here, because one of the things that the federal government has been fighting now for a year or two is inflation. And they say they want to fight inflation. And the way you fight inflation, one of the ways anyway, is by raising interest rates, because the idea is then less money will be borrowed, less money will be dumped into the economy. We want less money flying around in the economy. But if we give 155,000 federal employees a 13% raise, does that not kind of defeat the purpose of what we're fighting? It not only defeats the purpose, but it defeats the purpose on a number of levels, Scott. So let's talk about just on a, a micro-individual level first. Yeah, I mean, you're coming from a time that we were in a pandemic where we had too many dollars chasing too few goods, and so prices started to rise in levels and depths that we haven't seen since the 1970s. So yeah, they want to calm that down. Inflation goes crazy. They raise the price of borrowing money. And just as the system starts to come back down again, you have, as you said, about 155,000 workers that could potentially have a massive, massive increase to their disposable income. So does that mean that there's going to be more money put back into the system? Well, yes. Now, exactly how much, we don't know, because there's something out there called a marginal propensity to consume. And we don't know for every dollar that these people get a wage increase, do they spend a penny of it? Do they spend 99 cents of it? So it's going to depend on who you are, your, the way you look at risk, and just sort of where you are socioeconomically. So number one, it's scary because you are defeating the purpose of where we are today. And then number two, nowhere does it say, even if you sign a labor agreement, Nowhere does it say that that amount of labor has to maintain their jobs for very long. And we know, we know that when the price of labor goes up, the demand for labor falls. That is one of those economic laws that we just can't change. And so those people getting that extra money, some of them may find themselves no longer employed at one time and may say to themselves, why did I have a job at X dollars a year and suddenly at Y dollars a year, I no longer have that job. Okay, so, but Eric, let me jump in for what's just one sec on that point, because you mentioned the economic principle there, but does that exist within the public sector? Because I, we don't ever see jobs disappearing in the public sector. They only ever grow. Uh, you only hear about them growing, Scott, but they do disappear. There's a lot of disappearing jobs. It just comes in the way of generally it's in retirement. It's in other ways like that. But you can rest assured there are contractions even in the public sector. They're just not usually as deep 
as in the private sector. But there are many, many ways to decrease your labor force. And the public sector, both on a federal level and a provincial level, are not afraid to say, sorry, folks, you've now become too expensive and we're going to hire less of you. Okay, so now, and again, like this may sound like I'm saying don't give anybody a raise, and I'm not suggesting that at all. People deserve to have a raise. It's a question of what's the proper amount for a raise. And and one of the things that even the Globe and Mail was writing about today was saying is, look, if, if they get a very, very, very generous settlement with the government, then we're going to have hundreds of thousands of future federal employees that are going to want to negotiate that and hundreds of thousands of provincial unionized employees and municipal employees and private sector union employees. Like the, the, this is not just about this 155,000 people. Not even close. So you're talking about the contagion effect. And I was actually, that was the next thing I was going to talk about is you're going to set forth the system into another type of spiral. And, you know, there's two types of inflationary spirals, and I'm so glad that you jumped on this, because one is demand pull, and one is cost push. And what we saw with the pandemic is demand pull. And what you're describing with increases in the labor market are cost push. Labor says we want more, so prices have to go up, so labor demands more, and prices have to go up, and we get caught in another spiral. But it's no different than the demand side spiral, except that it's a supply side spiral, but it's both a spiral, prices go up, and then we get caught in the same problem that we were in after the pandemic, only we're on the other side of the outhouse. And where we, I, I think where the concern is, there's a lot of concerns probably on this one, but I don't think that too many people, some, but I don't think too many people who are working in the private sector are looking at 14% or 13.5% increases over three years. I, I just, I don't, I mean, maybe there's a few, but most people, that's not their reality. And so if we do this all of a sudden, if the government does this and starts that spiral, yeah, the people who work in government are probably going to be fine, but you're essentially penalizing the entire private sector, are you not? We have for a long time, unfortunately. And this is one of the things that makes people sit up and go, what did you just say? What I'm saying is that for a very long time, the only sector in the economy that has grown is the public sector. And that is a recipe for economic disaster. You need to have a strong, capitalist-run, private sector. That is what creates growth. Growth does not come in the public sector Growth comes in the private sector. And so when we should be trying to stimulate private sector growth, because there hasn't been a ton of it, look what you're talking about. You're talking about the government putting us on yet another type of spiral that's going to see a massive increase potentially in the number of people working in and want to work in the public sector. And by the way, the numbers that they're talking about are so ridiculous. I'm in a union. I'm in the Toronto Metropolitan um, University Faculty Association. I get... 1%. And I'm not the model of everybody, but I'm not complaining about my 1%. Because given where the economy is right now, I think that makes sense. Where they are coming up with these double-digit increases is beyond me, and I use the term a lot, but it's just a recipe for disaster. The war that goes on right now between the public and the private sector is so sadly deserved. Because you have one sector looking at the other sector going, your sector suddenly has massive wage increases, crazy generous benefits and crazy generous pensions, and we're supposed to be the sector that creates growth. What, what do we do in these times? And you know what? 
there right, Scott. Well, and we got to run, but I mean, look, how many times in the last, how many years have we heard the government, but also every party basically say, you know what, we're here to fight for the middle class. Well, to me, what you just described is the opposite of fighting for the middle class. The middle class may be of the, of the public union group, but as far as the real middle class, this doesn't sound like it's fighting for the middle class. It's not fighting for the middle class. It's not fighting for the middle class at all because the middle class is vanishing in the public sector. This is the public sector trying not to appear as self-interested as the private sector, but of course the veil is off now. This is just the upper sector of the public sector trying to get as much as they can. And by the way, didn't they talk a great game during the pandemic about sharing in the economic recovery? This, Scott, is the opposite of sharing in the economic recovery. Eric Cam from Toronto Metropolitan University. Always appreciate the time. Thank you. It's an honor. Stay healthy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is no shortage of baseball fans in this area. I can tell you that because my son and his girlfriend went to the Jays game on the weekend. I dropped them off at Aldershot Go Station so they could grab the train. And it was crawling with people in Blue Jays garb heading down to Rogers Center. And it always is. Anytime there's a Blue Jays game, especially on a weekend, you will go there. That's where, that's where everybody's heading. There's no shortage of baseball fans. And yet somehow one of the great challenges in this city for a business, for a sports franchise, one of the great challenges has been the Hamilton Cardinals. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think primarily the biggest one is the location of the stadium. Bernie Arbor Stadium is not an easy place to get to. Nobody stumbles upon it and says, hey, there's a game. I'll stop and watch. You have to intentionally go there. But they now have a new majority owner, a new person who says, I think I have the ideas that can make this thing work. His name is Eric Spear, and he joins me now. Eric, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. How are thanks you? For do- uh, great. Thanks for doing this. You know, I, I wrote about you the other day, and I've had a number of people say since, he sounds like he's got a lot of great ideas, but my goodness, he's a brave guy. Um, it, it, are you a brave guy for taking on this challenge? Yeah, I think like you touched upon the article, right? There's, you know, obviously been a lot of ownership turnover with the Cardinals over the years, but, you know, I'm ready to step up to the plate. Okay, so I mentioned the location, and I, I would bet you that if you were to do a poll of Hamiltonians, um, 35%, and I might be generous here, would know how to get to Bernie Arbor Stadium. How, how, much of a, how much of the challenge comes from the fact that it's just, there's just not a lot of awareness, to even to begin with, of this team and location? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Like, we were at the Toronto Rock game, which I know, you know, the Toronto Rock fan base travels quite a bit, but we were there on the concourse at First Ontario on Saturday night, and we were handing out schedules. And some of these people lived in Hamilton, and the number one thing they asked was, where do you play out of? Mm. You know, so I, I was taken aback by that because I always hear, like, certainly the location of the stadium. Um but I think a, a lot of it is just building up the awareness of the, of the team and then kind of help, hoping to educate and point people the right direction to come find us on the mountain. Yeah, and I'm not even going to talk probably much of today anyway, much of the time we have. I'm not going to talk about the team on the field. Um, I mean, the team on the field has been traditionally almost a last place team. Now, the last number of years before COVID, things turned in a very positive direction and they had some success and hopefully that continues. But to me, the, the, you know, you could put the greatest team ever on the field. If people don't know about your product, 
they're not going to come. I mean, it, it seems like so much of what you're going to be doing is a marketing campaign. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think when anybody goes to a you know, sporting event, there's a certain expectation on what the fan experience should be. And that starts like walking through the gate and your interactions at the box office and what does the concourse look like and how is the merchandise stand presented? And then that carries right into, you know, the game day experience and what's happening, you know, in between the action. So um, that's been a huge priority from, you know, for myself and, and for the entire organization is we need to kind of level up, so to speak, on like every aspect of the marketing um, and that fan experience. And I got to give you credit because I looked on the, the website and I know there's a page there for, you know, team shop or whatever for merchandise and the merchandise looks great. I mean, it like if, if I don't know that every team that people want to wear the stuff always, this, this stuff, I think it actually looks really good and it's been changed and it's been freshened up is part of the idea here to get it onto people's bodies so that when they're walking around town that other people will notice it. It is sort of, is this trickle effect to make people wonder what that is? Yeah, definitely. I think it, I mean, the rebrand kind of speaks to, you know, part of, you know, that was definitely part of my strategy when taking over is, okay, we need to start fresh here. You know, we need to kind of abandon the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, you know, logo that we've kind of, you know, been carrying for years. Um, so I really wanted a distinctive Hamilton brand. Um, and we worked with a great designer out of Burlington uh, to put that together. But that was like, you know, number one agenda, like less modernize this brand. You know, let's, when you put that logo side by side, you know, with the Bulldogs and the Tiger Cats and the other teams in the city, you know, we want to fit in. And um, yeah, and, and we, yeah, we think it, it is a, a cool logo that, you know, fans throughout the city want to represent. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll give you this. It definitely looks much, much better. And I, I, again, I think there'd be a lot of people who would say, yeah, that, that kind of is a cool thing. And I know one of the things you've got is a, a third jersey was just the hammer uh, written out on the, on the shirt. I mean, that's the, again, like cool touches. And I, and I, I keep, I think I've used the word cool a couple of times, but it seems in, well, with the Jays, for example, I started by talking about the Jays. If you can somehow make the place the place to be or a cool place to be, it seems to work as a magnet. How do you, how do you turn an, uh, inter-county baseball league park into a cool place to be for fans to want to attend? Yeah. And you know, like you said, with the Blue Jays, right? They've really doubled down on that, especially this year with all the renovations. Um, but I, I've taken a look at the other teams in the league, and Welland, the Welland Jackfish do a great job of that. Um, you know, certainly they have a, a beautiful stadium, but they've been able to create you know, different atmospheres within the ballpark. And, and, and really, that's a blueprint that we want to follow. Um, we have kind of sectioned off down in right field. We're going to be doing a bit of a, bit of a patio, uh, right up, right near the visitors' bullpen, and then on the left field side, you know, we're creating an alumni tent, um, and getting back a lot of our alumni, and you know, we've added things, different activity stations for the kids. Uh, we've added cornhole as well, and you know, of course our mascot too. So, yeah, we just have to we have to make it feel like an event. Give you know, give everybody uh, you know a reason to to go out to the ballpark rather than just baseball. I mentioned off the top that I really think um, just where the park is, there's nothing you can do about that. I, you know, you're not building a new park in town, I don't imagine. So you're, you're, you're living with this. Uh, other than the park, what have been some of the reasons, do you believe that it's been such a challenge for whomever owns this team to make it, a go- make it go? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's a tough question. It, you know, it's challenging for me to speak on behalf of past ownership. Um, I think, you know, I think for me, it's just, it's trying to bring a little bit more of a practical approach as ownership, you know, like nobody's, you know, nobody's going to go sell the, the corporate sponsorship for you, you know, so I, I'm kind of like lead by example type. And I love rolling up my sleeves and, and getting in there and, and doing what I can to get this off the ground. Um, you know, so I'm hoping, you know, my, my practical approach is, is certainly going to help. And you've, I mean, you've, you're a business guy, you've had success in business. Is it, uh, for people who don't know, I mean, give a, a 10 second explanation of what your main business is. Yeah. So my, my professional background is in logistics and supply chain. I started a, a logistics software company that was pre-revenue and we've been able to, to scale out to six different countries. And it's largely based in Los Angeles, which is where I used to live. I now live back in Hamilton. Um, but yeah, I have experience, you know, taking things, you know, from, from really from scratch. But can it transfer? Can, can, can someone who works in logistics use this, apply the same things that worked and make a baseball team work? I think, I think the passion wins out in business and you're not going to meet anybody that's more passionate about sports in the city than myself. Um, you find me and my, my family going to Kilty Bees games, you know, we're always going to, uh, different sporting events across the city. Um, you know, I, I think, I think the passion wins out. Uh, I think Brad Pitt said, how can you not be romantic about baseball? And I think, I think it's really that, that passion that's going to carry me. Hey, if you can turn this into Moneyball and go on a 20 game winning streak at any point, we'll take it. Um, Eric Spear, new co new majority owner of the Hamilton Cardinals home opener, May the 19th at Bernie Arbor Stadium, and if you do not know where Bernie Arbor Stadium is, if you are one of those people, uh, you can go to the website, which is? Uh, IBLCardinals.ca. There you go. Uh, Eric, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So earlier this week, I think it was earlier this week. What day is it today? Well, no, it was, uh, it was late last week was the anniversary of Terry Fox beginning his Marathon of Hope 43 years ago, April the 12th, 1980. If you were around, if you're of a certain age, and that's not even a big age. I mean, you either remember or you know. I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there's anybody who's not heard in this country of Terry Fox or knows what it's about. However, over the course of that run that really impacted Canadians in a way that I don't know that any other event in our country did. I mean, you could argue about World War II, or you could argue about a few other things, the 72 Summit Series, and nonetheless, it it is right up there. In the course of that run, a number of items, a lot of items were collected, memorabilia, things Terry wore or touched or letters he received or on and on and on. And one thing that has surprised me as I've been thinking and I saw the, was reminded of the anniversary last week and and everything. One thing that's really surprised me is there is no permanent Terry Fox museum anywhere. Not that I know of. Worse than that, the stuff that is priceless and symbolic and so important in this country right now is locked up in a warehouse. Unbelievably. Rob Reed is the chair of the board of the Terry Fox Center. He joins me now. Rob, how are you tonight? Good. Really appreciate you out there. Yeah, really appreciate you doing this. And I was, 
I was amazed to realize that still, as I understand it, nowhere in Canada, there is a Terry Fox museum. I know if you go to the, cause I've been there. I know if you go to the Port Coquitlam public library, there's a few things, maybe they're not even still there, but at one time there was right. a little display, but, yeah. but there's no museum for Terry Fox. How's that possible? How is that possible? Well, you know, Terry was one to put all his energies behind him to raise money for cancer research. And, um, and TFF, Terry Fox Foundation, has done an outstanding job with that over the 43 years. You know, $850 million raised. And it's made such an impactful difference for all of us that have had family members or each of us that, you know, people that have had cancer. Um, the research that has been done. And that was Terry's goal. So, you know, those runs are so important that the school children do at school every year and that people come out for in September in the public runs. Um, that money is, is what Terry, what really moved Terry. And, and that's, that was his goal. He didn't expect that he'd end up after his run with the family and Douglas Copeland doing a book on Terry um, in the later 2000s, um, early 2000, 2008, uh, doing a book on Terry's artifacts. And that moved the family to start collecting the artifacts and taking care of the artifacts. And a lot of that started with an exhibit that we had in Ottawa. Where, where had, uh, sorry, let me just jump in for a sec, Rob. Where had these artifacts been between 1980 and, say, 2008? Right. Well, they were scattered. <laughs> you, know, you know, Betty, um, who passed away um you know they had artifacts in the drawers you know in in boxes you know in the attic sort of thing so they were all over the place and artifacts still keep coming in um it wasn't that long ago that we got a a mile marker from thunder bay that was quite significant Mm. so you know it's funny how, how that story is a fabric of what it's like to be canadian and he's such a mentor to so many school children and, and adults that lived during those years, um, you know, we still we still have a really fond memory. And, you know, it's almost therapeutic to be able to see the exhibit, which did travel Ottawa, Winnipeg, Edmonton, you know, Victoria, um, as well as the van separately. And we unveiled the van in Oakville at Ford headquarters in Oakville in 08 and started bringing it across the country. And that's where we really realized as well as having the, the smaller exhibits that we were able to really touch people with Terry's story. A hundred percent. I, I actually saw the van in Waterloo. It was at a mall in Waterloo okay. for a while right. and yeah. uh, stood there for, I don't know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And yeah. you could hear people as they were coming in m- sort of murmuring, like it was, it was not like looking at a trophy or something like there was something far more meaningful and impactful to seeing just, I mean, it's a truck. It could have been anybody's truck. It happened to be the truck that he went with and it it meant something to people. Like it was clear that it meant something to people. Yeah. I mean, I I can't think of a Canadian automotive vehicle that has the impact that the van has had. And we noticed that when we started bringing it across, because we unveiled it in Oakville and then it was shipped to St. John's and we started driving it across the country. Um, not driving it, but we brought mm-hmm, it across the mm-hmm. country, but we would drive it into different towns and cities along the way. And uh, it was just phenomenal. So, you know, the, the, um, it's when we set up the exhibit, as we have across the country at various times, you know, it's funny, I go in and we go through the, the first viewing and 
I sometimes have to point out to the people that have the facility is that they might be missing something out for the public, and that's uh, like a Kleenex station because <laughs> it is so moving and, and people really react very strongly and emotionally to the collection. I mean, to the point that I remember, I don't know, you can probably remember better than I can, two or three years ago, Adidas came out with a special edition of the shoe, like a model of the shoe, and right. sold out of them in about four minutes. I mean, and yeah, like, they've done that a couple times. Yeah, everybody wanted exactly. to get their hands on, on that. So, okay, so when we talk about the artifacts, the truck is obviously, the van is obviously, you know, a huge one. What else are we talking about? Are these things that literally are recognizable things that the average person who remembers watching the Marathon of Hope or learning about it would, would say, oh, I, I recognize that, or are these really obscure things? For sure. I mean, there's, there's a bit of everything. Um, you know, one thing that TFF is doing a great job of this year is, is promoting all the letters written to Terry, and those are thousands, and we have those in a digitized, you know, form at an exhibit where people can look up their name and their letter could pop up if they sent Terry a, a letter. Um, you know, we've got, wow. we've got Sittler's hockey, you know, I mean, hockey jersey, you know, that was presented at City Hall in Toronto. Um, hockey sticks, you know, autographed, uh, photos from, you know, celebrities like Dolly Parton, you know, that sort of thing. Really? So there's, yeah, there's, there's quite a, a, a range of things. Where did know, Dolly then, Parton meet Terry Fox or learn about Terry Fox? Do we have any idea? <laughs> That's, I've never heard of that well, before. Terry, you know, runs are held annually in numerous countries. And um, so people know about Terry Fox. So, and, you know, I think of some of the people I've met over the years putting on marathons and running marathons, um, you know, from Runner's World in the U.S. of A. And, and uh, those guys keep ranking Terry as their most heroic runner of mm. all time, as far as a marathoner goes. So, you know, it, it's, it, you know, we, we break the boundaries as far as our borders go when it comes to this significant story. Also, you know, we've got the bottle of water, the jug of water that Terry filled up in the Atlantic that he was had carried in the van every day to bring to the Pacific, things like that. And then his leg, I mean, you know, talk about um, a biomechanical, you know, appendage that uh, has been updated dramatically for the athletes now. I mean, so there's, there's so many stories. Yeah, but instantly tell. recognizable. You don't have to, you could show no. that leg anywhere in Canada, I would suggest, without any suggestion of what it is. And people would go, is that Terry Fox's leg? In the permit location, I said, I want a telephone booth that's blacked out that you stand in. And for those that are young, you don't understand what a telephone booth is. But, you know, you stand there and you can listen to the noise that that leg made. And I think Canadians would know what that sound is, yep. let yep. alone. Yeah. So, you know, it's phenomenal where we can go with it. And for us to be able to find a permanent home and the family, you know, was in Port Coquitlam in BC outside Vancouver. Um, they're keen to sort of have it, you know, in their region out here. I'm phoning from Victoria right now, having grown up in Toronto, but um, they'd like to have it out here. And, you know, if we can, if we can find a location that can work, you know, 2030 is the 50th anniversary. And I think as Canadians, we have to tell Canadian stories. I think we can say we're sorry, but we really need to make this happen. And I think this is a story we can't let get lost. Betty in her last speech at BC Place in Vancouver uh, made reference to that the generation that did experience 1980 is with us right now, but those days will pass. 
and we need to be able to pass this story on to the next generations. Yeah, and, and look, I, I agree with you 100%, and I'm sure most people listening do as well, but what really sort of stunned me when I first heard about this collection is the fact that it's not on display now. It's in some sort of warehouse or something. And, uh, excuse Correct. me, I mean, it sounds like the, 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 the Ark at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, it's just like, how is this possible that whether it's a permanent museum or not, how is it possible that somewhere at all times this is not on display? The, the, having it tucked away in a, in a warehouse just seems, I don't know, wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, I guess we're sort of following, like, you know, Terry was a pretty quiet guy when it came to you know talking about himself and we have done the same thing since we've been collecting um the artifacts uh you know 2012 and onwards and um and putting them away even though there have been some exhibits and um you know while they're while they're tucked away they're safe but we want to really you know we do want to get them out i mean i did have the van at scotia bank you know center last year in toronto and then it traveled to Edmonton, it traveled to Vancouver, back to Vancouver, where it's, it's parked right now. Um, no, we don't want to keep them locked up. It's really important, though, that, you know, I'm not going to come out publicly and say, send me your nickels and dimes. That's not what Terry would want. Terry wanted us to send donations for cancer research. So it's a matter of finding that business plan, because it's a tough time for museums and galleries, et cetera, right now. Um, we need to partner up with, you know, similar sounding or similar galleries and museums and, and share resources to make it a better business plan. Yeah. So how can we do this? I, it's not that we would want to be charging a lot of money for people to come in and see this important Canadian exhibit as well. No, but Rob, look, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I'm sure about the fact that it's a tough time for museums, but at the risk of like offending everybody who loves museums, <laughs> there are a lot of museums that honestly are really boring. And, or, okay. or exhibits in museums that can be boring. I don't think that anybody, and that's not all of them, but I think we know what ones there are out there. This, right. I just don't think that anybody would find something like this boring. And more than that, I don't know how many visitors, say, the Vancouver area gets every year from outside the country, but I got to believe that this would immediately rise to, you know, you'd have Stanley Park and you'd have the, what's the, 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 span bridge uh, that I can't think of right. the name of right now. Like pick yeah. your things. This would be right up there as far as the thing we have to do if we go to Vancouver. Yeah, I think so for sure. You know, and, and uh, you know, attractions are really important. I was just at a downtown Victoria meeting this morning and as every downtown is having some struggles these days and the more exhibits, you know, and attractions and activity we can have in our downtowns, uh, that's what we want to see happen. You know, whether you're in London, Toronto, Hamilton, wherever. Um, that's what brings our downtowns and makes them vibrant. So, you know, for, for us to be able to park the van uh, somewhere for, you know, a number of months or a, a long time for people to look at that, you know, that's what we need to do. So whether it's Terry or something else, I mean, that's a different topic, but, you know, we're working on it. We're in discussions with the uh, BC province right now, province of British Columbia, um, our cultural minister, and setting up some meetings so that we can keep moving the ball forward. Um, well, last week was the anniversary. Um, I just look at it that we've got a finish line of 2030 and we've got, you know, seven years left to, uh, to make this happen. I want to be able that we can unlock that door and, and, uh, let the public in. Just before I let you go, have you physically been able to 
put your hands on any of these items that have been in the warehouse? Have you, has there been some, yeah. I mean, have you had that experience that almost nobody else would have? Yes, I have. I mean, I was in Toronto, north of Toronto, where someone was working on the van and just standing amongst all the pieces of the van before it got put back together. And, you know, hearing stories about Ford driving down the road and noticing that's the bumper we need for the van. Please pull over, you know, and getting that bumper from someone or, you know, visiting Daryl at his home in Chilliwack and, uh, he pulls out one of the original T-shirts, and it was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, like, wow, we, what can we do to protect this? This is so important. And uh, so that's why we have a small, very small group of volunteers, and, uh, and we're working at it, you know, one step at a time to make this happen for the next generation. Yeah, I'm just wondering, what would be the thing that you got to see up close or hold on to that really sort of made you stop and pause? What, what was the thing that really caught you? Well, I, w- I would say, you know, just, just the T-shirt, you know, and the wear and tear or, you know, Terry's socks, which he didn't really change enough, his mother would say, <laughs> uh, his socks and, and how worn out they were. You know, everything is, is just so much a piece of this story, you know, and then being able to be in the van where he slept every day, you know, and, and, and drive the van a little bit at the beginning of the tour. It was uh, pretty, pretty phenomenal to be able yeah. to have that experience. Just and I just think, you know, having the van and people, what they go through, and that's why TFF raising money is so important um, for people to be able to, you know, sit inside the van or just be near the van and, and uh, just realize the, the money and the support that's been raised through his small town idea of running across this amazing country, how important it is to Canada. Just before I let you go, has any of this stuff ever showed up at auction? Not, not the, not the collect, not the things you're talking about, but have you ever been or someone ever been somewhere and seen that a Terry Fox artifact is up for sale? Does that ever happen? Or would that be so, I don't even know what the right word is, just, you know, poor form. Yeah. That nobody would do it. Has that ever happened? No, no, not that I'm aware of. And uh, I'm not sure the family is, is, you know, is aware of that happening at this time. But uh, yeah, you, you, there's certain things you just don't do. And that would be one of them. I, I think so. I think that would absolutely yeah. be one. Uh, Rob Reed, chair of the board of the Terry Fox Center. Uh, the website is terryfoxcenter.ca. And I'll tell you, if you go on there, uh, not you, Rob, but anyone else, uh, or you, uh, and scroll down, there are photos of, of some of the things. And I'll tell you, um, some of them will just, you'll stop and stare at them. I, I know that, again, uh, the one time I was out there at, and went to the Port Coquitlam Library and one of Terry Fox's legs was there and I, you know, it, you just sort of sit there and stare at it for a while. You can't help it. It's, uh, it's just part of the, part of what this country is all about. So we have a rich history and, and we're re- rewriting a lot of it, which is the right thing to do. And, uh, but this is a story we don't want to drop off the, you know, out of the textbook. So to speak. Rob, Rob Reed, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. All the best. Ciao. Uh, so let's hope. I mean, let's hope that somehow that, that, that it, it's wrong. Come on. It, it, like, does anyone disagree? It's wrong that this kind of stuff, that this kind of collection, that these kind of things are in a box in a warehouse. There, there's something just... I don't know. I don't even know. I'm wrong? I mean, obviously wrong is the word, but there's just there's something almost pathetic about that. The great, when they did the, when they did the, uh, greatest Canadian a number of years ago, Terry Fox, I, I think he won, right? He was either number one or number two. Nonetheless, one of our country's greatest heroes 
surely the stuff should not be in a box collecting dust in a warehouse. There, now I'm just saying it. There, hey Hamilton, you want, I know they want it out in BC. You want something that'll bring people to Hamilton as a tourist attraction? Build them a museum here. There's your idea. There's your idea. Put the bid forward and say, we will build a Terry Fox museum. He came through Hamilton. He went up right up York Boulevard. There's your idea. I would even, as a guy who doesn't love paying taxes, but does, I would pay extra taxes for that. Cause that is such a good idea. We're not going to do it, but I would, I'd be all for it. you. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.